Welcome to the Graybeard Chronicles podcast. Your hosts, Brian Halstead and Kevin Harkins, are two gray-bearded patriots who love God, their family and friends, and their country. The Graybeards are here to inspire, inform, and educate you on a myriad of topics they are passionate about. Brian and Kevin have a strong desire to share this with you to help you live your best life. Sit back and enjoy this amazing podcast as the Graybeards pass along the wisdom of the ages. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 35 of the Graybeard Chronicles. I'm Bryant Halstead. I'm here with my partner in crime, Kevin Harkins. And man, Kevin, we are excited tonight, are we not? We are indeed. This is a, this is a special night. Yes. Yes, we're going to expand our horizons a little bit, and actually, it's not going to be just the two of us talking tonight. We, uh, we are fortunate to have our very first guest on the, uh, on the Graybeard Chronicles, and we had, we had promised we were going to do this and uh actually the the guest that we have tonight is the one that we had set up to uh to begin with and um due to scheduling conflicts we had to had to change that but uh, we're gonna make it happen tonight and and i would add we've set the bar high that's what i'm thinking this is uh to start out with uh with this particular guest is is a good one and it's you know we're gonna be we're gonna have a challenge to to meet this so no pressure there john <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, folks that listen to us already know um, who our guest is, is tonight, and uh, we've got John DeVore on the line, and I'll, uh, I'll give John a shout-out, and then I'll tell you a little bit about him. So, John, welcome. Thank you for being here. Right on. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. So some of you may be familiar with, uh, with John DeVore and, and who he is and what he does and his various accomplishments, but I wanted to, to read... Um, just a small excerpt from his uh, bio off his website just to kind of set the table for you out there that may not know who he is. Um, so here we go. John DeVore is part educator, part performer, and 100% visionary. A professional skydiver and cameraman with 19 years experience totaling more than 21,000 jumps, uh, base jumps and wingsuit jumps, uh, John's a two-time world champion, a three-time national champion, and he's been the aerial coordinator of the Red Bull Air Force stunt team for 17 years. And this is a quote that's a part of his bio that says, my passion is human flight, and I'd like to teach the general public that what we're doing is actually flying, not dropping, he explains. Gravity is our engine. Love that. Love that. John, thank you so much for being here. 21, yeah, 21,000 jumps. I mean, I, it take me a long time to count that high. <laughs> <laughs> and you've jumped out and, oh my goodness, that, it's, it's re- it really is for the common person very hard to imagine that many. And, and how, how, do you descri- how do you describe that? I mean, how do you, I mean it's, it's amazing, actually. How many times a day is that? That's a lot. That's, a, that's many jumps a day. Yeah, yeah it's... Uh it all goes in waves. Um, back when I was training a lot for national and world type meets, a typical training day, we would, we would jump anywhere from 10 to 15 times a day, do that five, six days a week and take a couple day break and just keep repeating and repeating. Um, so the numbers add up a lot. You can easily do a thousand to 2000 jumps in a year on that kind of a training schedule. And then the years add up and so do the numbers. Wow, and there you have it. Yeah, yeah. I guess when you yeah. when you think of it, but like that, it, it, it you could add up very quickly. That's certainly impressive. Yeah, I though. mean, you have to do a lot of a lot of jumps to get to get really 
top level of the sport, you know, a, a typical skydive is about a minute from exiting the airplane to the time you pull your parachute. So you're really only getting a minute of practice every jump. So even doing 10, 15 jumps a day, you're looking at getting 10 to 15 minutes of, of training in, in reality. So you really need to, to do it a lot in order to, to be at the top of your game. That's a, it's an exciting one minute though, especially I'm sure in the early days, I, you know, I know many people who have jumped out of an airplane one time and, and it was a highlight of their life and they still talk about it. And there's pictures on their wall at home about that one jump. And it was a tandem jump many times where they were, you know, had somebody strapped onto their back, uh, doing, doing, I guess, most of the work for them. And they just wanted the excitement of doing it. That's, uh, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, and, and yeah, then well, you have those people like us that uh, have not yet done such yeah, a thing. Right. <laughs> right. right. What are you waiting for? Come on. <laughs> we'll do it. That's that's a great question. Right. I'm not sure I have an answer for it yet. <laughs> but I, I will tell you that I, uh, and I, I've shared this with Kevin. I don't know if I shared it with you in, in Vegas or not, but I honestly, I've never seriously considered it um, until we had dinner with you that night and I was listening to you and I could just feel your passion for it and it's contagious and uh, you know i was i was seriously considered changing what i was going to do there for that event uh and i didn't um for my own reasons um knee knee injury that i was dealing with that i later had surgery for but um but ultimately um i tell you what man you uh, you certainly inspired me and i i felt like um you know i i could do that just because of the confidence that you have and and it's contagious and i was yeah so i'm 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 almost there almost we're getting close yes yeah, we're I getting closer we're getting way closer than we've ever been yeah baby steps that's all it takes nice <laughs> one day i'm going to will it to happen putting it out in the universe we're going to be together again john and we're going to we're going to have the opportunity to to jump with you and we will we will sign up and do it cuz bryant is right you know you are um you just instill confidence in those around you. Uh, remember when we were out there in Vegas and Joel, is that how you said his name? Joel? When yeah. We were at the, yeah. Joel, yeah. Joel yeah. jumped out and boy, that was quite something, wasn't it? That was a, you talk about a life changing experience. Yeah. And well, the whole ordeal leading up to it and all the emotions connected to it, it was, um, you know, we all kind of got to take that ride with him. Uh, because of how he shared it with us, and and it was uh, it was an experience for and it, you know we're outside just watching him right, um, not feeling the emotions exactly like he's feeling them. It was powerful. John, yeah, it was. It was a big life changing moment for him. Yeah, it was just... usually is for most people. It's uh, it's something that a lot of people don't consider, like you were saying, until usually usually when you go skydiving for your first time, it's not something that's planned out that you knew months in advance you're going to do it. It's usually on a whim where where all of a sudden a buddy grabs you and all of a sudden you don't know where you're going. You're driving to a drop zone and before you know it, you jumped out of an airplane and it really uh, awakes, awakes something inside of most people that it's not that everybody turns into a skydiver after it, but the, the confidence and among many things that it instills in people that I've seen, it's a, very awe-inspiring. It's something everybody should check out at least once in their life. You know, it's usually something they check off their life list and they move on from it, but they've accomplished it. And that rare few find that that little addiction bug kicks in and 
they need more of whatever that was they experienced. The next thing you know, a year later, they're a skydiver with a few hundred jumps. Wow. Yeah. So the thing that you just said that uh, that caught my attention is it wakes up something inside of them that uh, that that wasn't awake before, and that that is really exactly what we're talking about with this podcast. Uh, we're we're trying to to pass on the wisdom of the ages, and you just you just hit on one with that particular comment that uh, you know getting to the core of people's psyche and having them uh, do something that changes them forever and makes them a better person is, is what it's all about. And, um, you know, we're just going to jump into the questions here. We've got uh, both a number of them listed and just want to ask you about stuff like that. And, uh, and I love it. Yeah, um, there, there's one that, you know, this question jumped out while he was, was talking okay. about that particular scenario. Um, and, and here's the question, John, is, you know, what one thing uh, from your bucket list Right, you you mentioned that this may have been on somebody's list of things they wanted to do and so on. But what so what one thing from your bucket list do you have that you've not yet completed? Phew. Um, <laughs> I've <laughs> oh, where do I start? <laughs> um, I've lived a pretty spoiled life with my with my sport, and my career. Um, it's afforded me a lot of unique things that I've been able to check off my list. But I would say. You know, something that's it's not as exciting as jumping off a cliff or out of an airplane, but something that I've realized that I really want to do more and more of is travel the world and, and specifically kind of dive deep into the different cultures of the world. That I've, been, I've been lucky enough to be able to travel all around the world, but it's usually on a project or a film shoot or something that allows me to really only get my feet wet. Um, at different locations that I'm going. Mm. And I really realized that something I'm really interested in is kind of human nature and how different people from around the world think and click different. And I really want to go back and visit places I've been and places I haven't been and just kind of try to understand human nature better. So it's, it's kind of a more of a retirement thing for me when I get to that point in my life. But it's something I want to be able to do with my wife to travel around and kind of uh, experience the human species for for all they're worth. That's neat. I tell you, your answers, man, it's almost like you got a copy of the questions right. that we have here. You're just like setting us up for the next question that we have. I, uh, I, I, I appreciate that. That makes life easy for all of us. I do what I can, you know. So uh, I've had occasion a few times in my life to talk to people who are at the very top of their game. And what I mean when I say that is that they are among, if not the very best in the world at what they do. Um, and I, you know, place you or we, we place you in that category. And it's always informative to find out what, what drives a person of extraordinary achievement. And so the question is, what, what drives you? And uh, so that's part one to it. What drives you? And the second is, did you, when you started out, um, did you know that you were headed, uh, you know, to this pinnacle or did you just sort of wake up and realize that you were there once you arrived? How do you, how would you describe that? Yep. Um, Well, I mean, what drives me my whole life ever since I started paying attention to what I wanted to do with my life and 
where I wanted it to go um, is truly, you know, lack of better words, happiness. I, I realized at a young age, um, even when I was in high school, interning with different type of jobs, office jobs, what have you, that that most people I saw, they weren't pursuing something that made them happy and they weren't excited to wake up and go to their day-to-day life, their jobs or what have you. And so at a young age, I realized that that's something I needed to find for myself, something that really made me happy. So I really was able to find a way to turn my passion to my profession. And then I realized there wouldn't be a day in my life that I was really working if I was going to do what that was, whether it was work or just fun. Um, you can't really call it work if you're going to do it anyway. So my number one goal at a young age was to, to really figure out what I enjoyed and what I wanted to do and figure out a way to make that a career of mine. And originally it wasn't necessarily skydiving, but I did realize that adventure sports um, and teaching people was something that I was very interested in. I did odd summer jobs from river, river raft guides and things like that. And so I realized that, that being outdoors and educating people on on things that they had normally not tap into was something that interested me. And then I found the world of skydiving and it made everything else I, I did not really um, kind of, it, it didn't match up to, mm. to put it simply. Yeah. And so every, I went back, whether it was, you know, skiing or you name the sport that I liked doing growing up, just nothing really uh, turned me on the way that, flying my body did and so I realized that uh I wanted to figure out a way to make this a career and I didn't know what that even meant you know professional skydiver what does that even mean you know as a 17 18 year old kid you don't know and so I I did uh the best thing I knew to do and that was to immerse myself in the scene so I did a little bit of research and moved to uh the biggest drop zone in the world at the time which was skydive Arizona out in the middle of nowhere in the desert. And I found myself surrounded by the best in the world. It was the Mecca of skydiving. And I was surrounded by all the world champions, all the top performers. And I just started paying attention to, to what they did and what was making them successful. And that kind of helped me pave my path towards to success in, in that world. And I realized that, you know, obviously you had to be somebody that could, you know, back back up your talk. And what I mean by that is being able to not just say you're good or have rumors be that you're a good, you know, skydiver was I had to go prove it. And so I realized right away that I needed to train. I needed to focus on things like national and world competitions and kind of put my money where my mouth was. And that if I could do that and accomplish that, that the rest would probably fall into place once I kind of built the resume. Wow, yeah, I, love love that. Yeah. Man. It's like <clears throat> thing that came to mind when you're saying that is you gotta you gotta walk the talk. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to I wanted to follow up because you said something. Well, actually, before I follow up, I, I you gotta know who Tommy Caldwell is, right? Are you friends with him? Do you know who he is? The the um the rock climber. That that uh, that went up the Don Wall at uh, Yosemite, El Capitan. I, I don't know him. No, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. But no, I don't. 
Anyway, you reminded me. If you want to watch a great movie, by the way, go watch The Dawn Wall. And it's, it's somebody who, who's like you, very top of his game, and his is rock climbing. It's, it's an amazing movie. But the thing you said, and I, I just want you to expand on it, and then I'll let Brian ask his question because I'm, I'm, you know, <laughs> sorry, he's looking at me like, let me talk. Um, <laughs> no, no, I'm no, not. No, no, no. Um, it was, you know, you said, I decided I wanted to be happy, and then I did some research, and then I just basically poured myself into it and found myself surrounded by everybody. There are parents, many of them out there, um, and I know some of them, who tell their kids just the opposite. You know, they would say, you can't just go after and do what you want to do to make you happy. You know, you got to be a doctor, you got to be a lawyer, you got to be an accountant, you got to be something that gives you some real skills so you can earn a living. Uh, you're saying something very, very different from that, which I happen to agree with, but um, I'm sure people have told you that before, and you probably just laugh at them. I don't know. What, what, how do you react to that? Yeah, you know, it, it's something I talk about often. I, I find it's a hard thing to answer because I feel n- nobody is the same, and not everybody, you know, I feel very lucky and blessed that at a young age I found something that, that had me hook, line, and sinker, and there was no doubt in my mind it's what I wanted to do, where my my best kind of yin-yang to that is my wife, where she's, she has two law degrees, got wow. in her class in law school, and she's from Belgium and in Brussels University. She was top of her law school, came to America, studied for the California bar, never went to any law school law classes in America and you know, like all I'm getting at is she's very brilliant at, at those things, but she really didn't have much of a passion for it. So she never chased, even though she had all these huh. great degrees and stuff, it's something she never really pursued and chased down because it, it wasn't really her interest. It was just yep. like what you said, her parents said, be a lawyer or a doctor or something, but you, you know, set yourself up to make a lot of money and be successful. And so I look at that and she kind of, I guess, lack of better words, struggled with trying to figure out who she was as a young adult because she didn't really have the passion for law. And so I think, you know, it's a, it's almost an impossible thing to answer because not every 17-year-old kid knows for sure they want to be anywhere from a skydiver to right. a lawyer right. to anything in the middle. Right. Um, but I think that what I try to instill in people is, that you can't be afraid to chase your passion where the first couple of years of me chasing skydiving and I was blowing through all the money that I had saved for university. And luckily I had parents that were kind of from the hippie generation and they were <laughs> fully, fully supporting me chasing my dreams over just being another rat in the race, doing what they're told. Mm. Um, so I give a lot of credit to my parents not making me feel like I was doing something wrong when I was, dropping out of school and chasing this wacko career of skydiving. Um, but I mean, that's what it takes is that you have to persevere through the, what am I doing with my life? Am I making the right choices where when you wake up every day, if, if you're excited to wake up and go after what you're doing, then you are doing the right thing. And it's not necessarily going to lead to multi-million dollar paychecks and this crazy, you know, superstar career being a lawyer or an athlete or anything in the middle. Um, And I think you kind of have to be okay with that where you have to outweigh happiness over financial reward a lot. And today 
I don't see that that it's very celebrated, um, at least in the early stages where I see a lot of people, they're celebrated for being successful once they've made it, but the people that are chasing it in the early days, society, I feel, tends to kind of, you know, shun that a little bit. It's, it's not necessarily supporting people chasing whether you want to be a, an artist or a dancer or skydiver or, you know, NBA player, you name it. It's, it's a hard balance and it just takes determination. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I appreciate that. Cause it's, it's interesting that, that, uh, you know, this, the theme of the messages that you're sharing here, cause it's so consistent with things that we've talked about on the, uh, on the podcast previously. So I, I greatly appreciate you driving those points home. And, uh, you know, I, have got to tell a little bit of a story here. It's just a, a, a quick story on, uh, Kevin and I signing up to, to go to this mindset retreat that, uh, that Gearhart uh, w- was putting on in, in Las Vegas. And, um, just uh, maybe a week or well, a few weeks prior to that, a buddy of mine had shared with me a book that he thought I would be interested in. And the title of the book is the rise of Superman decoding the science of ultimate human performance. And as I was reading this book, I, I came across this name, John DeVore. And I had also been looking at the flyer for the mindset retreat that, uh, that we were going to be attending. And, of course, John, I saw your name on there. And uh, I shared this with you, I think, at the racetrack that, uh, yeah. that day that we were out there that, um, you know, I, I came across this book and I was reading about it. And then I, I realized that, hey, this, this is the guy that, that you know, we're going to have a chance to meet in Vegas. And, uh, and you said something that was very profound, and, it, and, and I love it because it's something that I say frequently. And what you said to me was, that's the way the universe works. And uh, yeah, I, I, that was just a that. smack in the forehead. I was like, yeah, this is right. This is exactly why we're here. Um, and, you know, thank you for that. I, I, I thought that was cool. And if you haven't checked that book out, um, I encourage you to do so. It's, um, there's lots of good information. The author is um, Stephen Kotler. And uh, just just good stuff about uh, people like John that are at the top of their game doing amazing things, way outside of what we may have previously thought possible. And uh, it's just it, it, it's certainly a good read. So I uh, I thank you for that. Um, I do have a few more questions, and uh, hopefully these aren't too difficult for you. I know I got we, much we, more. I got we, many more questions. We, we didn't Zoe. give you these questions. <laughs> you know, we didn't give you these questions in advance. We we did go back and forth to, and make sure that we're not uh, you know overlapping on our questions. But this this is an easy one. Um, all right. So with all the stuff that you do, what are you afraid of? Ooh, um, I mean, I can just say the first thing that came to my mind is the no brainer. I'm I'm a I'm afraid of dying and to be honest, because my, my job is very high risk. Um, but I'm not afraid of it for the reasons that most people are. I'm more afraid of it because of who I'd leave behind. Um, my wife and two beautiful kids. So that's the hardest part. Um, that's the hardest part for me. That's what I'm most afraid of. And it's probably my number one Achilles heel in the sport. Um, it probably limits me from doing things that I would like to accomplish only because I know that does the risk outweigh the reward, you know, type scenario. Um, you know, so that's kind of the no brainer answer to that is afraid of the, the high risk death side of things because it does happen. 
but that happens in life, whether you're crossing the street at the grocery store or jumping out of an airplane or anything in the middle. So, um, you know, the other thing I'm really afraid of is to be honest, not, a not being able to do what I do for a living for the rest of my life. And that's just, as you get older and, and your body slows down a little bit, um, you know, you start to get limited, especially when it comes to having an athletic career. And so right now I still feel a thousand percent on top of my game, but I know one day I won't be as quick. I won't be as sharp. I won't be as strong. And that scares the hell out of me that, that I won't be able to go out and do what I'm doing right now. And, you know, in 20 years from now, I hope I still can, but it's definitely a, a fear of mine that when's that day coming that I can't perform the way I want to perform. <laughs> So it's, uh, that, that's pretty cool and it, it it's uh it, it actually that was one of kevin's questions right so um yeah that was uh that was spot on I, and i appreciate you sharing that i uh i mean it's something that, that kevin and i will will um you know we're not looking forward to and we haven't experienced any of that physical decline that you're talking about um you know that's bs but uh <laughs> <laughs> I'm, i i've experienced plenty but you know john what, what you just reminded me of is i, I i'm not going to get this quote right and I don't know who said it, so I'm going to completely bastardize it. But uh, it was something like this. There's only two days a year that you can't do what you want, and that is yesterday and tomorrow. The only day that you actually have is today. And so what I'd say to you is you still got today, and you're still a 1,000% on top of your game. And just take that until one day you wake up, and you're not a 1,000. You're 900% on top of your game. And you will adjust. I have, uh, you know, Brian and I talk about this all the time that you, you know, you, you do. You just adjust and you make the best of it right where you're at. And we're a couple steps ahead of you in that regard. So you're right. The day will come, but, um, but you, can still, you can still eke everything that you can out of every day, no matter what age you are. It's just, yeah, you do age out of certain aspects of what you're doing for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And that's very apparent to me. Yeah, so I'm just preparing for it and uh, ready to charge. <laughs> All right, so I can't. Here's a here's the next thing I wanted to ask you about. You you did have it's kind of the right time to talk about it. You did have what I would call a kind of a major scare, a major incident. Um, you know where you did jump out and and things didn't go as planned. Uh, and uh, first of all, would you tell us a little bit about that? And then probably more interesting to me is. A lot of people will go through what you did go through, and we heard about it in Vegas, and and decide, you know, that's that's a that's a sign from the universe that I need to do something else. That was that was all I needed, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get back on this particular horse and keep going. I'm 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 ready to transition for something different. And you didn't do that. In fact, you came back, you know, with a vengeance. Uh, will you tell us a little bit about that and kind of what were what were your thoughts and uh, and and why did you and how did you get to the point where you're ready to just jump right back in. Yep. Um, yeah. So I guess I'll, I'll tell a cliff note version of the story of what happened and then go into the psyching part of it all. <laughs> um, so early in my stunt career, one of the first stunt phone calls I have or that I received, um, it was back in 2001, just to date myself a little bit. But I was asked to do a stunt where um, basically I wore 
I was dressed as a skier, a snow skier, but jumped out of a helicopter at 12,000 feet with snow skis on and went into free fall with them. And without going into what the whole sequence was, we'd been doing it for a couple of weeks and it really wasn't that big a deal. I'd learned how to fly with skis on and things were going um, as planned up, in, up until they weren't. <laughs> so on one jump, <laughs> right. um, on one jump for no particular reason, um, I had a little bit of a gear malfunction where when you reach to pull your parachute, you throw a little little tiny round parachute out called a pilot chute, and that extracts your main parachute out. So when I threw that pilot chute out into the wind, it wasn't doing its job. It wasn't pulling my parachute out. So I started wrestling with the gear, and um, without getting too t- technical, my parachute or the lines came out, and wrapped around my skis and my boots and my bindings while I was in free fall. So I basically got hogtied by my lines and wow. the fabric um, as I was falling gracious. to earth. And so I fought with this and fought with this. And I, I don't want to bore the listeners of getting too technical about why it all wasn't working, but the gear was not working. I wasn't able to cut away the main parachute and I couldn't get my reserve parachute out because the the cable that the reserve is attached to was bent kind of like a garden hose. So it wasn't allowing the cable to extract and fire my reserve. So I had about 35, 40 seconds of free fall all tied up in my line. Um, my parachute never came out. So no parachute deployed a little bit of the fabric came out of the bag about the size of a, a black hefty garbage bag, I guess you'd say. So it was enough to create just enough drag to kind of hang me upside down by my feet. But I was still, according to the other people there, I was still falling at very much free fall speed, um, you know, which even to slow it down, say I was falling 90 to 100 miles an hour instead of 120 plus. But I was still plummeting towards earth at full free fall speed. Oh, my goodness. And... um, I was spinning very, very fast, kind of like a, if you had a, a rock on the end of a string spinning it. And I had crazy tunnel vision. I could barely see anything by the time the ground came up. Um, and through that whole free fall, I pretty much admitted to myself that I was going to die because I knew what was going on. I knew, you know, I was very aware of the situation. And I realized that this is it. And I went through a whole wave of emotions, which felt like hours of a mental conversation with myself. You know, it was really like only 40 seconds, but it sure felt like an eternity. Right, right. Um, so I took those feelings and, and that situation all the way into the ground and impacted the ground without a parachute opening. And I landed uh, on the very top of a mountain. And <clears throat> believe it or not, the mountain is named Mount Invincible. I, I'm not making that up. Wow. <laughs> what are the chances? Um, right. Right. Yeah, right outside of Queenstown in New Zealand. Um, so that was pretty funny because when I impacted the ground, um, I went through kind of a very strange spiritual thing where everything was black, um, but I never lost the dialogue with myself that you have in your own mind where I was in a conversation with myself the whole time. And 
um, the, the gist of the, of that conversation was that I knew I had died because I was very aware of what I just went through, but I was still talking to myself. So I got very excited and, and very kind of, uh, <laughs> I guess you'd say just emotional in a very good way. Cause I realized there's something else because I was still talking to myself. Yeah. You I didn't cease to dead. exist. Right. So, right. Yeah. yeah. So something had to be coming because here I am still talking to myself. Um, and I guess I laid there, according to the stories I'm told, for a couple minutes before another stunt skydiver guy that jumped out and his parachute actually worked. <laughs> um, it took him about a couple minutes to fly over and land on top of the mountain where I had impacted. And he thought he was just landing to help recover a body. But the sound of him landing right next to me, for some reason, I opened my eyes and realized that I was still alive and still on earth. And I did the whole wiggle your toes, your ankles, your knees, your hips, all the way up to your head thing, and realized that I didn't feel any pain. So I sat up and eventually got up, and um, kind of was the biggest miracle of my life where I didn't break a single bone, I didn't get injured at all. Um, I stood up and was able to walk to the, rec the rescue helicopter and and get in it and continue on without a scratch on my body. So it was quite a dramatic moment for me to say the least, but um, it, it didn't really slow me down. That's for sure. I just, even that day, um, the funniest part of the story to me was that I kind of believed that I was living in a parallel universe because I still, as you can imagine, my brain was in a thousand different places at that time, my thought patterns. And so the, the only thing that really made sense to me is that I must have died. And now I'm living in a parallel universe where just like in a dream, you can get up, dust yourself off and keep going. So I, I convinced the producer to let me take the parachute, untangle it from my skis. I actually had to tie some, physically tie some of my lines together that the skis had cut. And I walked up the mountainside and ski launched the parachute because the scene we were trying to shoot at that time was simply me landing the parachute with my skis on, cutting the parachute and skiing away. So I was like, well, I might as well complete the, the shot they wanted. <laughs> so <laughs> I went through, I did that sequence. And then, uh, and then after that, I think the reality of everything that happened kind of set in with the producer, director, and everybody, because then they started freaking out, threw me on a helicopter and flew me to the hospital thinking I must be, you know, have brain damage and internal bleeding and everything. So <laughs> the story goes on from there. But, but that's kind of the gist of my no shit there I was. <laughs> you know, that, that, that story, I remember hearing it, very similar version in Vegas, and it just blows my mind. It really does. And I, I don't know if you're a man of faith, but... Uh, even if you're not, that can make a whole bunch of people faithful because uh, no doubt <laughs> the fact that um, that you survived that and and not only that, but I mean almost immediately got up and continued the filming and continued to do what you're doing. Uh, that and is, how, how about the guy that was uh, that landed there to uh, to come in and thought he was going to recover a body? Uh, I imagine he was a little surprised. Yeah, it's yeah, just, yeah. He was surprised to the point of when I set up when I first kind of woke up I set up I spooked him so bad that his knee-jerk reaction was he 
tackled me in like a hugging tackle, just going like, oh my God, you're alive. And he tackled me without thinking for a second that most likely I had broken neck, broken right. back. <laughs> right. Probably not the thing you want to do to a guy that right. just <laughs> fell 12,000 feet or how, however far it was, right? Yeah. Yeah. I actually fell a little over 6,000 because the, the mountain I landed on was 6,000 feet. So I oh jumped out at 12 and ate up half the altitude, but. Wow. But yeah, so he was shocked. Everybody was shocked. There was other skydivers there that were standing, you know, a half mile away at the base camp and watched the whole thing. And absolutely everybody was sure that what we call in the sport, I had went in, which means you, you go into earth and you die, you know? So, but then I flew back in the heli and said, Hey, I'm right here. (laughs) And this whole thing about the, you know, the parallel universe that, that we live in. I remember you mentioning something about that too. And in some weird way, as you went on with your career, um, it made you feel better somehow. I, I'm, I, those are my words, not yours, but uh, more confident, uh, continued your confidence in what you were doing. Is that is that a safe way to say it? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, what it really did, and I, it, it wasn't like a drastic slap in the face thing. It was more when I reflect back and realize, you know, what it was that, that changed me. Um, it strangely gave me this this weird boost of confidence where I felt like I could create my own reality, you know, for lack that's of better. That's the phrase right there. That's what I was looking for. I couldn't remember. It. That's it. Wow. Yeah, and, and ever since then, I realized that if I want if I want something, I just have to manifest it in my mind, and and it doesn't just happen, of course. But if I'm passionate about something and I pursue it, and I'm diligent with with following through on things that, that I could really create whatever I wanted. And, and ever since kind of that mindset, my, my career and my life, my love life, everything took off rapidly. And so I'm a really big believer in, in being able to create your own reality. You just have to believe in it. That's powerful. Yeah, that, that really is. That's uh, you know, we've said it on the podcast many times, the best way to predict your future is to create it. Yeah, and we certainly we we certainly didn't ask you that to uh, to focus on the negative aspect of of what happened and what could have happened. Uh, it was clearly you know what happened afterwards and all the positive things that came out of it. So right. thank you for uh, for reliving that again with us and and sharing that with the folks that are listening to this because it, it is it's incredibly powerful and, and and you are so spot on with uh, with the lessons that you walked away from uh, that incident with. Uh, awesome, man. My my hat is off to you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, crazy times. I'm going to change it up here completely in a a whole new direction. Um, You know, one of the things that as I've, you know, looked at the things that you've done, John, and studied your life a little bit, it's it's extremely creative uh, when when you're up there and and trying to, I'm going to make up words here. I don't know what I'm talking about. You know that, but, you know, new tricks or new whatever, you know, new new methods, new swoops, I don't know, whatever, whatever the right word is, mm-hmm. I call it, it's creative. And um, I, I wanted you to comment on that a little bit. How do you, how do you approach creativity w- when you're thinking about it? And, and how, how could the rest of us use those fundamental principles in our own lives? Because I, you know, I know that part of your deal is 
to be world champion, you got to do something better and more creative than the next guy. I'm guessing, especially when it comes to skydiving and, and the athletic yeah, the nature sure. of that. So yeah. Can you just comment on that? Um, I mean, it's a little hard to answer, but the, the creative side in me, it, it really comes down to, to not be, I've never been happy just where I'm at. Like once I reach a point, um, whether it's in my career or personal or you name it, I, I'm always searching for more. I like to grow um, and experience new things. So um, I get to, to focus more on the, the world of skydiving and in my career and, and how creativity really shaped who I am. Um, it kind of goes all the way back to the beginning when I first found skydiving. Um, there was no such thing as the sport free flying. There was what everybody knows is skydiving. There was people that fly belly to, to earth. They come in a formation. They, they all grab onto each other and they build formations in the sky. Um, it was super cool, of course, but I really wanted more and I wanted to experience what I was told couldn't really be done. And that was to fly different than what I was seeing. And I met a group of people that were all like-minded individuals where they wanted to try to explore the realm of human flight and be able to break out of the mold of what everybody's being told is what you have to do. And so a group of 10, 15 of us developed a brand new discipline in the sport. And that's simply out of not, not being happy with being told we can't do it. And we knew we could. So we spent years and years, this was before wind tunnels where you could learn, you can learn nowadays a lot quicker, but back then you had to physically get in the airplane, jump over and over and over again. And we had to go out and explore what it was like to get off of the belly fly position and go feet towards earth or head down towards earth or everything in the middle where you could fly circles around each other or take off and track across the sky. And, you know, kind of wanting to explore the unknown is something that, that I've always thrived in, whether it's, you know, as a kid growing up on the ski hill or professional skydiver as I am now, it's, it's something I really like to try to create and do things out of the box. And I think that not everybody is like that. A lot of people like to fit into a mold and they get very comfortable like that. So I don't think how I think about being creative and pushing borders and limits is for everybody, but it, it, it was definitely for me and it really helped me shape who I turned into. Yeah. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. And it's, uh, you know, it's very interesting. What, what role, um, did you guys play? And I want to I want to step back just for a second. So for the listen audience, if you don't understand what the Red Bull Air Force is, it is. I'm, you tell me if I'm wrong, John. The elite skydiving um, team in the world, the most elite, the best, the number one. Is that is that safe to say? Is that uh, maybe somebody would argue with you, but um, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean that for for. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like to, <laughs> I don't like to brag or say right. we're the best in the world. There's a lot of brilliant 
brilliant athletes out there. But yeah, we, we, it's taken years and years to assemble the team and it's, it's been handpicked and selected and by everybody you, on by the you, team. right? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much everybody on the team, except for one guy was brought on by myself. Um, just being one of the original athletes for Red Bull when they came to America. Um, so yeah, it's, we're all top, top performers, world-class athletes, whether it's base jumping, skydiving, wingsuit flying. And really it's, it's not that there's not other people out there with the same skill set, but it's, it's more the mental game that came with it where there's a lot of people out there that I could easily bring on our demo team and could go jump into a NASCAR race and wow the crowd and be excellent at what they do. But kind of the mindset of the Red Bull Air Force is always trying to, to progress the sport, not just show the sport off, if that makes sense. It so sure we're is. all absolutely every so, single one of us third. We we take pride in being teachers and educators, not just performers. So you mentioned the wingsuit flying. Where? How did that evolve? Yeah, I mean, everybody in the sport will have a different story of how it, how it evolved from them. But in the sport in general, the, the idea to, to put fabric between your arms and your legs and give more surface area and fly across the sky more like a bird, that's, that's not a new idea. I mean, you could research. I think the first man that ever did it was like in the – late 1800s at a French fair. He only made one jump because he jumped out of a balloon that didn't work. <laughs> but, <laughs> we laugh. When that happens, we laugh. Yeah. It's not funny. Right, but <laughs> right, right. Yeah. No, you can look back and laugh now to the pioneers, I guess. But, but all I was getting at is the idea is not brand new. Um, but say back in the early 90s, Patrick, uh, I would say his name a little wrong, um, the guy that everybody knew in the world called the Silver Surfer. He was a French guy named Patrick D. Gaillardon. He was the first guy that really took the idea of a wingsuit and sat down with people that knew what they were doing with sewing machines and started building prototypes, jumpsuits that had extra fabric from your wrist to your body and in between your legs. And he started showing that, like, hey, these things are working. They're flying. They're given a lot more surface area, therefore a lot more distance you can travel and speeds you can travel. So it started getting the attention of the sport. Um, and it wasn't until uh, another French guy named Jean-Louis Albert, he was the first guy that ever took a wingsuit and flew it really close to the ground, like two feet off the ground where he was yeah. matching his shadow. And it that right there was, the, the change in the sport where everybody realized like, wow, there's something different here. There's something very special. So that's when people like myself um, and people on our team and all around us in the skydive world, they kind of got the bug of like, wow, I want to learn that. That looks exciting. And so it was a slow el evolution of, of the suit. Cause at first it was just simply fabric in between body parts that gave more surface area but then the manufacturers started coming out they really started putting some engineering into it and realized that we could build these suits that pressurized and almost turned into fixed wings they feel like you, when you're in them you feel like you're flying 
a fixed wing and it takes a lot of energy to compress it or collapse it. Um, and so for me, it was in the late nineties, I started playing around with wingsuiting a little bit, but to be honest, I got really bored really quick because back then it was jump out of an airplane, your minute skydive turned into a three minute skydive, which was kind of cool, but you were usually alone because nobody was good at it yet. So there you are just flying off into the distance by yourself in the, in blue sky. So there's no visual reference either. And I quickly, you know, it sounds funny, but I quickly got bored of it. I wanted to go back to free flying where I was spinning and flipping and doing all these cool maneuvers. And it wasn't until the world of base jumping started taking note of wingsuiting and you started realizing or I started realizing that, wow, the same feeling I get on a cloudy day when I'm flying a wingsuit and I have that visual reference, you know, and you start to realize like, oh my God, I'm, I'm really flying because I can fly right by this spot or right by this or dive down through that hole. And kind of that thrill and that awareness was what kind of started clicking, I think, with everybody in our sport. And that's why wingsuit base jumping became so popular because when you have a visual reference, you know, the mountainside next to a cliff wall, trees, whatever it is, that's when that sensation of real human flight kind of overtakes you because there's not a doubt in your mind. That's when you realize I'm not falling, I'm flying. And that's that's where that uh, that addiction kicks in, that yeah. dangerous addiction of jumping off cliffs with them. Yeah, that's that is that is absolutely amazing. I I know you shared with this this with us in Vegas, and I've watched this clip several times, and actually watched the entire movie um, yesterday, uh, Point Break, and uh, and and watched the wingsuit um, scenes in in that. And you shared a little bit about the uh, the experience and and filming um, that particular. Uh, episode and 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 how you know you guys had to come in at a certain height to stay below the you know where this camera was and and it's uh, it, it's one thing to watch the movie but to hear the backstory and then watch the movie makes it even more awesome. So do you mind sharing that? Yeah, that was a that was an exciting time. <laughs> um, yeah, a, a little backstory and then I'll get into that actual sequence. The Point Break thing was an amazing time in my career, mainly because back in 1991, when the original Point Break came out, I was a, what was I, a sophomore in high school, and that's the first time I really saw skydiving, and it's the first time that I realized, like, well, I, I need to try that, and I just knew somewhere that in my future, I was going to at least go jump out of an airplane once because of that movie, and then to flash forward to just a few years ago, where I get a phone call to be the aerial stunt coordinator and Utah double and completely remake the movie was, was such a full circle dream come true for me. It was like, a, that is amazing. Yeah. A, yeah. An amazing pinch myself moment, but to, to get back to that exact sequence, which was, which was very exciting for me. Um, so that the mission on that was we had a, a phantom camera, which is an amazing camera that shoots, at a thousand plus frames per second. So the most ultra slow motion camera on the market. Now what we wanted to capture was just that very intense moment where the characters are flying in and first meeting the real terrain of a wingsuit proximity flight. Up until then you'd see seen some trees fly by and some rock cliffs on the side of them, but they had yet 
come into that 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 oh shit moment of the terrain is just feet below you and there's there's no turning back now you can't pull away from that and so that was what we were trying to capture and show the audience was that moment and we had we had done quite a few rehearsals of that exact line um, but without that phantom camera set up and every time the rehearsal happened the formation was spot on everything was picture perfect and we'd probably done it too many times because now it's time to shoot it and i was going into it with more confidence than i should have had probably because you should never be overconfident in a life or death situation. Um, but I was going into it very relaxed. The team I was with, I'd known for many, many years, trusted everybody. And so we jumped off the cliff. Everything was going as planned. And we all had an exact slot we were supposed to be in, just like the Blue Angels, you know, have exact slots to be in. So they're not hitting each other's wingtips and things. Um, we had our spots to be in. And so we were coming around a corner and usually right when we come around the corner, I'm supposed to give a little bit more energy, which would keep me just a foot or two up above the Bodhi character in the black suit that was leading. Um, but instead I did the corner a little soft and I found myself one or two feet underneath him. And it, if you can imagine when you're flying a wingsuit, you're going forward at 120 miles an hour plus forward. And so there's a big slipstream of air that is that you leave as a wake behind you. Right. And that air can be very dangerous because it's, it's not stable air. So if you fly through it, you could, what well, we call a burble. It's not even a real word, but <laughs> um, we could fly through the burble, which is just a bad bad pocket of air that could take the pressurization out of your suit and worst case is it could collapse you and you'd fall into the ground so as we come around the corner and I find myself just a little bit lower than I wanted to be I realized at that time that I had two choices one was to fly up through that burl that bad air and take my chances or trust that my leader who's also my best friend and who I trust with my life obviously that he was going to hit his mark spot on. And in my mind, I'm thinking if he hits his mark exactly where he needs to be, that still gives me enough of a room for air and that I can fly underneath his line, but still have enough room to, to not go into the grass and, you know, kill myself basically. So right, right. that's what was going through my mind as we're approaching the grass field and as as anyone would do, being that the camera's up and it was time to perform, everybody was taking it to basically the border of, of their own comfort zone. So what that means is the leader, the Bodhi character, he pushed it down another foot or two. Ugh. Everybody came a little tighter, Goodness a little lower to the ground to get, get the shot. So that was forcing me a little bit lower, a little oh. bit lower. <laughs> and then if you as you see in the movie, um, what was really just a nanosecond in time, but in slow-mo, it looks a lot more dramatic. I was basically flying through tall grass. I was feeling things hitting my face. And at the time I thought it was bugs or something. And I realized that it was the tall grass reeds sticking up that I was plowing through with my face. Oh my and, goodness. And you'll see at the very end of that clip that 
my feet are six inches at the most off the ground. So I had taken it to the, uh, to the level of no return and, you know, everything had to be exactly right or, or it wouldn't have been. So, you know, that was a big case of trusting your team to do exactly what was rehearsed and planned and practiced and trusting yourself to be able to see the line exactly as you see it. And now that I look back, you know, it was kind of a humbling moment for me because I know vividly what I was thinking at that moment. And I still thought that I was two, three feet off the ground, that I still had a little bit more room for error if I needed it. But to go back and watch the playback, I realized I didn't have another inch or I would have been dragging my feet in the ground, which wingsuit flying that grabbed you like sandpaper and just would have. That would have been the end of it, right? That's that would have yeah. been the end of it. So right. another another lesson learned of uh, giving yourself a little bit of room for error because <laughs> <Man, laughs> probably a little closer than you think. It is an incredible scene to watch. Uh, even without the the backstory that that you just shared with us, and uh, go you know going back and watching it after having the benefit of hearing the story from you, and uh, for those that didn't catch this, you know as the as the Utah double, so he, uh, John is in that blue suit, and uh, watch that right. Go and watch the whole movie, or you know search it on YouTube. Uh, the the Point Break wingsuit flying clip, and uh, you'll you'll see it. And you'll understand exactly what he's talking about. And it'll be so much more powerful after having uh, heard this story from him. So thank you for sharing that. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, John, I know we're, uh, we're getting close to the end here. And uh, uh, I'll let Bryant ask the final question, which, which we agreed on. But I'm gonna, before you do, Brian, I'm going uh, to ask this question. Um, so right off the top of your head, all things considered, um, the whole conversation that we've had here you know, today – there's something that might be on your mind right now, and it doesn't have to be the single biggest thing. It can just be what's on your mind right now. But if there was if there was one thing or one thought or one principle that uh, that you would want to um, to convey to our audience uh, in light of who we are, what we do, what we're up to here with this podcast, um, with respect to passing on the wisdom of the ages. And I'm, I, I sort of took my time telling you all that so you could think about it for a second. <laughs> what, what, would that, what, what would that be? What would that what would, the, would be the one, the, you know, or, and, and it doesn't have to be the single biggest, like I said. And one thing that pops to mind that, that you'd want people to take away from all this. Well, now that, that was a long enough question that now a few things popped in my mind. But. Oh, good. Excellent. <laughs> nice. Now that... Um, I mean, the first thing, as you were asking the question that popped in my mind without overthinking it, is something that I think I owe a lot to um, in my career, in my life, and I see that it works for other people, and that's not to be afraid to do something that's out of your comfort zone, and that's something different for everybody, but I feel to grow as as a human, mentally, spiritually, physically, everything, you really have to find something within you to, you know, whether it's go on a tandem skydive or simply throw on a pair of ice skates and go on the ice skating rink with your kids because you would never have done that before or anything in the middle. Do something that, that takes you out of your comfort zone. And most likely you're going to accomplish it to some degree. And 
it's not about necessarily accomplishing what that moment is. It's about convincing your mind that you can do things that make you uncomfortable and get through them. And I think that's a, a big part of growth that a lot of people are afraid to take that leap. How powerful is that? Yeah. And that, thank yeah. you so much for sharing that. That is, uh, that is a lesson I think we can all benefit from. And uh, no doubt, you know, um, I, I've heard the phrase and I've said this myself many times, you know, everything you want in life is on the other side of fear. And uh, you just got to yeah. learn to push yourself sometimes. Um, so. Yeah, it's like that old saying that fear knocked on the door, faith opened it, nobody was there. <laughs> nice. There you go. I love that. I've not heard that, so... All right, so I actually, uh, Kevin, I have two questions yeah. I have to ask John so before right. we wrap up here. Okay. And I'm certainly sensitive to your time, John, and uh, but I, I've got to ask this. So the, the, we have the benefit of being able to talk to you or talk with you tonight because of where we met you, right? We met you at this mindset retreat that was uh, put on by uh, Gerhard uh, Schwantner, who is the, uh, the founder and CEO of Selling Power and also the creator of this mindset retreat that we went to. Um, how did you get to know Gearhart? How, how did you guys connect? You know, that's a funny story. It kind of goes in line with uh, with my take chances type mindset. Um, I, I got a random phone call from him out of nowhere. Um, and that happens from time to time. Usually I'm pretty guarded because of my involvement with Red Bull Usually phone calls come to me and people have an alternative motive of trying to get in with Red Bull somehow or, or what have you. And at first I kind of took the, his phone call to me where he was interested in just, it, it was kind of almost strange for me where he right away talking to him, I felt like I had known him before and he was just very enthusiastic about getting to know me. He had read a little bit about me in research of athletes, and he was really interested in a few of my stories, and he wanted to know if I was interested at all in meeting him for lunch and just talking about life and seeing if, if a relationship between him and I paved any paths that, you know, that were mutually beneficial for either of us. And, and usually I'm pretty guarded, and I'm, I stay within my my bubble of people I know, but there was something about the way that he was talking to me that I just said, screw it. I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to drive up to Santa Monica and I'm going to meet this guy. And I didn't know anything about him. I, I had no idea, you know, what his real motives were, but he seemed very sincere and authentic with kind of wanting to explore my world of being an athlete and what it took to get to where I'm at. And you know, I think that the part of me that I always want to educate the world on what I do so people take it more serious and don't just look at us like a bunch of Yahoo daredevils, but realize we're very dedicated athletes with passion and drive. You know, I thought, I kind of saw an opportunity with how he was talking to me to, uh, to maybe be able to do that and share, share my vision with a larger audience. So I, for a lack of better words, I took a leap of faith and I drove up there to meet him to see what he had to say. And that's where kind of the, the mindset retreat idea kind of came from was I think him talking to me about an old business idea I used to have about a choose your own adventure tourism business. And all of a sudden 
now we're doing some retreats together and trying to get people out of their comfort zone and make them grow. What a great story. And, and thank you for saying yes to Gerhard that, you know, that, that got us here tonight. Right. So we obviously met, yeah, we met you because of that connection and, and, uh, and thank you for going out on a limb and, and taking that leap of faith. Um, he is a great guy and, uh, and he will definitely be a, a guest on our podcast at some point in the future. I know he, uh, that's something he's communicated. He'd be interested in doing, and we're, uh, we're certainly going to get him on here. So, uh, thanks for, thanks for sharing that. And again, thanks for saying yes to him. So, so you don't know this, John, yeah, but well, yeah, one one more thing about Gerhard. Um, the, the way that Brian and I hooked up with him was um, the building that the brewery is in, he used to own. And uh, when we were looking for a place to put it, and uh, he was a he was and is a smart guy, Selling Power used to be a print magazine that he uh, uh, published and printed and shipped from the building, which is now Six Bears and a Goat Brewery. Um, he, he, you know, as, as the world went digital, he went with it. Uh, a lot of companies didn't, and they're now no longer in business. Uh, uh, but, uh, he did. And that's why selling power continues to be the number one sales magazine in the world. Uh, but anyway, uh, he, he was looking to get rid of the building, put it for sale and we bought it. We turned it into a brewery and that started a friendship between us. And, uh, and there you have it. All roads yeah. lead to Gerhard. Right. The moral <laughs> yeah, of the right. story is beer. Beer is the connection. Beer. beer. There yeah. you go. There you go. Beer is the connection to life. Come on. Man. Yes, absolutely. No doubt. No doubt. Hey, so I got to ask you this, John. How, uh, how can our listeners learn more about you? Right? So I know they're going to be intrigued by the stories that you've shared tonight and, uh, and so on. How, uh, where can they go to find out more info about you? Um, I mean, there's, there's a few different channels. I, you know, the obvious, if you just want to kind of see sizzle reels and fun action stuff, you know, just my, my website, the com is a, is a easy place to go just to see some eye candy. And then I guess in today's world of social media, the best way to really get to know me would be to follow me on the social channels and see what I'm up to from day to day or peruse through my history of stuff and see what sparks an interest and you know I like to engage with people so don't be afraid to reach out and ask questions and and go down that path so just like the normal you know I, I'm most I'm most involved with probably Instagram and it's just my name John DeVore um and, and it's then besides J-O-N that, with no H J-O-N I just yeah, wanted everybody J-O-N-D-E-V-O-R-E. to know right. J-O-N-D-E-V-O-R-E right okay but yeah that's probably the easiest and and the good old World Wide Web is full of information out there. Yes, so, it is. Uh, yes, it is. So what one kind of a parting question here is um, what what can we do to help you? We uh, we appreciate you taking the time and, and being so gracious with your time to uh, to spend with us and, and have this conversation. Uh, and, and we're just interested to see what we could do to help you. Hmm, that's a good question. I don't, you know, at this point, I, I don't really know. I mean, the one thing you guys can do for sure that just kind of helps me and just uh, accomplishing my lifelong mission of educating the public on my sport is, you know, getting the word out of the beautiful world of human flight, otherwise known as skydiving. That it's, uh, it's, it's a very, you know, so few people in the world that do it and it's a very misunderstood sport. And I feel that, the more educated people are on the sport, the more they'll accept it as, as an actual sport. And, you know, 
you can actually be an athlete in it. And that'll help the sport grow for the future generations where it'll be more accepted. And, you know, cause right now I'm very lucky that I'm sponsored by Red Bull because most sponsors around the world run away from skydiving and base jumping because they don't understand it. And they think it's just a daredevil, you know, death sport. And so it's very hard for people, the new generation to turn it into a career to even see a path to turn it into a career. And so I feel the more people are educated on it, the more they'll accept it and the more the sport will grow. And that's what I would love to see when I'm an old man sitting in a rocking chair is that, you know, it's, it's as understood and accepted as skateboarding is. That'd be a good goal. Well, we will certainly do our part to help spread that word. You, you have and our besides that. Send, send me some cases of I of your best IPA. <laughs> oh man. Okay, you I, got I think it. That's certainly doable. Oh, yeah, that, that you can you you can consider that one done. Uh, yes, yes, we we will do that. And then um, back to your how how we can help you. We will be shouting from every mountain that we stand on your praises, and uh, and um, thank you for as Brian said, being so gracious with your time. Uh, this, this is great to, to listen to you and to get, you know, really the, the incredible story that you have out there in front of the people. And we're going to continue to press on this very hard. Uh, so we appreciate, we appreciate your time very, very much. And, um, yeah, and I think, I think, you know, this, John, uh, obviously, you know, what you do is absolutely amazing. And, uh, the thing that I really think that jumps out for me is in listening to you and, and having this conversation with you, the life lessons um, and the principles that, that you have identified as a result of the things that you've been involved in and the way that you're able to share those and articulate those with others is absolutely incredible. And, and I greatly appreciate it. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I appreciate you guys taking the time and having the interest, helping me spread the word. You bet. Awesome. Yes, sir. So we uh, we have this catchphrase that we uh, we end each one of our podcasts with, and I don't know if you've had the opportunity to listen to to any of them or or, or not, but uh, ultimately we believe in this experience we call life, and we believe that uh, no matter who you are or what you're doing, it's important to make sure that you enjoy the ride. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Great Beer Chronicles. Please subscribe so you'll receive notification when new episodes are available. To learn more about the Greybeards, visit their website, graybeardchronicles.com.